He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marvelled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he, con- and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of this, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought the head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Thanks very much, Dave. Uh, good morning. I'll just uh, tidy up the lectern here, get that out of the way. Um, my name's Jeremy. I'm one of the um, church elders here. A big welcome to you. Thank you for coming, uh, especially if you're visiting. Good to have you with us as well. Um, and, and we're going to be looking at uh, Mark chapter 6 uh, for uh, the next few minutes. Uh, do keep it open in front of you. Um, many of you would have heard of something uh, in... Um, the kind of health world called the body mass index. 
Um, I know it's a dangerous topic to start talking about weight, but that's what the body mass index is. It's a measure of how healthy your weight is. If you divide your weight in kilograms by your height in meters squared, you get your body mass index. Um, I'm not going to ask you to uh, tell me where you all land, but last night I rechecked my body mass index, hopped on the scales and tried to remember how tall I was, um, and I got uh, the, the figure of 22.8, which is slap bang in the middle of good weight health. So I was feeling pretty pleased with myself. If you're between 18 and a half and 25, then you're, you're, you're laughing. Except it's probably a bit more complicated than that in reality. More important than how heavy I am compared to how tall I am is, so they say, where exactly my fat is distributed in my body. Um, not just kind of where it is in terms of is it on my stomach or is it on my hips or wherever it might be, where is it kind of inside me? Because you can have fat all around your heart and in your liver and clogging up your arteries and all of that, all of that stuff. When I'm doing my day job as a GP, I try and talk a bit more technically than that, but that's, that's essentially what it is. Um, and if I, am on, if I am unhealthy on the inside, which you can be with a perfectly healthy body mass index, if I'm unhealthy on the inside, then no matter how nice my BMI is, the chances are that one day those chickens are going to come home to roost and I will suffer the consequences. And if that were to happen while I'm lying on my hospital bed after the worst happens, I will not be okay just waving my BMI 22.8 certificate at the doctor and saying, it's not fair, doctor. That's not supposed to happen. Because the point is, I should have paid more attention to what really matters about my health. Not be falsely reassured by that. Now, that's quite an unsettling idea, isn't it? The idea that unseen inside us there might be a terrible disease festering away, which I am blind to, which I'm unaware of. I'm choosing to look at other things and be reassured by them, rather than focusing on what's actually most important about my health. And that idea is a little bit like the big idea of today's passage that I'm going to show to you, I hope. Mark and Jesus, I think, want us to be unsettled by what we see here. Let me try and explain how that might work. Uh, this first part of chapter 6 is, is a chapter, a, a section full of unbelief. We're going to end up focusing more on the last section and, and, and look at Herod's unbelief. But it's there in the first sections too as well. There's the unbelief of the people of Nazareth in verses 1 to 6. These are people familiar with Jesus. They've grown up with him, perhaps. They, they know all about him and his family. They know all about the amazing things that he's saying and the amazing things that he's doing, the miracles. And yet they take offense at him. They refuse to believe in him in, in the, the Bible sense of believing him, which means to receive him, to accept him, to love him. It's an unsettling warning, that, isn't it? They have all the evidence, and they don't deny a word of it. Yes, he's done the miracles. Yes, he's said the amazing things. And no, I'm not going to believe in him. He's not for me. Then as Jesus sends the disciples off on a preaching tour in the next, sec next section, verses 7 to 13, he warns them that there will be people that they speak with who do not believe them either. 
And he tells them to, to shake off the dust on their feet as a testimony against them. So there's this unsettling sense of the fact that even though people are not denying what Jesus is doing, they still refuse to believe him and accept him. But we're going to focus on another unsettling thing about their unbelief as well. And it's this, how superficially these people might have looked they had, like they had lots going for them when it came to, to God and, and, and Jesus. They might have thought they were doing okay that they had something to build on it at the very least. In a sense, they have a, a, a healthy spiritual BMI. But as it turns out, on the inside, there is a devastating rottenness, which is about to kind of burst forth into plain sight and be revealed for all to see. We're going to see that in particular in the life of, of Herod. As I was preparing this, I was struck by the words of Paul in Galatians 6. Do not be deceived, he says. God cannot be mocked. It's easy to deceive ourselves, but we, f- we do not fool God. So don't be falsely reassured by false signs of spiritual life or spiritual health. Let's take the warnings that we'll see this morning seriously. Because if there is an unseen disease growing inside of us, festering away, ready to, w- to one day come to light... Well, fooling ourselves is not going to get us anywhere. God will not be fooled. Let's look briefly at what might be these falsely reassuring things about these people. The first superficial sign of spiritual health for all of the people in this passage is that they are Israelites. They are Jews. They are supposedly God's chosen nation. Now, I know that with the news headlines going on at the moment, any talk of Israel and Jews comes with a certain amount of baggage. I make no political point here at all. But God's chosen people from the time of Abraham all the way through to the time of Jesus was this nation, Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel. And for centuries, that had been a massive reassurance to them. All the people in this passage are Israelites. There were people from Jesus' hometown, even their king, Herod. And for many, that came with an assumption that that must mean they're going to be all right. But in reality, their Jewishness counts for nothing. So that's the first superficial sign of spiritual, uh, uh, spiritual health. The second one is that all of these people are, in, in one sense or another, impressed with Jesus. They seem to respect him and admire him, at least at first. Look, look at verse 2. The people who hear him teaching in the synagogue are astonished. Starts off quite well, doesn't it? He's made an impact. These aren't people who sit in church bored. They recognize his wisdom. They know his power, his miracles. We see similar things with Herod as well. Uh, d- down in, in verse 20, uh, the way that Herod responds to the, 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 um, the first, the foremost of the prophets, John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of all. He knows he's a good man. He fears him. He wants to keep him safe. He listens to him and listens to him gladly. Yes, I know he does imprison him, you know, which is a slight catch, but, but he, he's got something to build on here. We, we, we could look at Herod and think, do you know what? There's, there's signs of something good there. I think Herod might turn out okay in the end. He's showing some genuine interest. 
He's heading in the right direction. There's hope for him. But as we see, they're falsely reassuring signs of spiritual life. So being thought of by yourself and or by others as one of God's people, being someone who listens to Jesus, who's impressed by him, intrigued maybe, who says this guy does amazing things. Does that sound familiar to you? Doesn't that sound quite like us? And yet in and of themselves, all of those things are completely meaningless. I know we've heard this before, but it needs saying and over and over again, doesn't it? Being from a Christian family is a wonderful blessing, but it means nothing in itself. Having a Bible by your bedside and, and, and reading it is a wonderful thing, but in itself means nothing. Singing loudly in church is wonderful, but in itself it's meaningless. Giving money away, wonderful, but in itself it's meaningless. All of these things which might falsely reassure us, while it's possible that all the time there's something on the inside which we are never dealing with at all. That flab and that fat and those toxins are are building up inside us and one day out they will come and devastation will reign. So don't let falsely reassuring signs reassure you. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. So what really counts as spiritual health? What is it that God is actually looking for in us? That's the question, isn't it? What is this missing from these people? The answer? Repentance. 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 Turning from sin and turning to Jesus in faith for forgiveness of that sin, believing his good news, that's the thing which matters. That's been Jesus' message and John the Baptist's message right from the beginning of Mark's gospel. We've seen this a few times already, but you can flick back to chapter 1, where in verse 4 it tells us that John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Where in verse 15 of chapter 1 it says that Jesus' message was repent and believe in the gospel. In today's passage, in in, uh, 6 verse 12, the message that the disciples were um, preaching was the message of repentance, that people should repent. We can assume that that's what Jesus was teaching in the synagogue in in verse 2 on that Sabbath day. We know that's what John the Baptist had been saying to Herod. Chapter 6 verse 18, John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Stop it. Repent of your sin. You've got an unlawful marriage. You see, you can be a churchgoer without repenting. You can live an outwardly Christian life without repenting. You can sit here or in any other church and listen, sometimes even listen gladly to truth about Jesus and you cannot repent. You can believe he did amazing things. You can even believe he rose from the dead without repenting. You can hear that you're a sinner, that you must turn and you can do nothing about it. And yet without repentance, you will only ever be outwardly spiritually healthy, which is not spiritually healthy at all. Repentance is the the heartbeat, the drumbeat, the soul of the Christian life. And a lack of repentance is that cancer, that poison, eating away at us on the inside. So no matter how healthy our spiritual BMI is, it's that that will destroy us. As surely as night follows day, God cannot be mocked. 
And the longer that you don't repent for, the more dangerous it is because the less likely you will repent. That cancer will continue to grow. So what I'd like to do in the rest of our time is to look at what happens specifically in the episode with Herod to help us understand what it is that stops us from repenting and to paint a picture of the urgency of repenting today. The importance of making sure that every time you hear the voice of Jesus, you're confronted with his claims and his authority. Every time we open the Bible and read it, every time we come to church, to make sure that we respond in repentance there and then and in faith in him. So let's look at King Herod from verse 18 onwards. Verse 14, sorry. King Herod here is Herod Antipas. He's not the same King Herod who, uh, when Jesus was born, tried to do away with all the the children. That was his father. He obviously comes from a lovely family. But he's he's like a character from a sordid soap opera. Kind of belongs on the the Kardashians, if if you like, with all due respect to them. But he has somehow managed to end up being married to his brother's wife, Herodias. Okay? So that's the first thing. But get this, Herodias is also his niece. So he's married to his brother's wife, who is also his niece. Uh, And so Herodias can call Herod her husband, she can call him her uncle, and she can call him her brother-in-law all at once. So it's a messy business, isn't it? Totally immoral, totally illegal, a fact pointed out by John the Baptist in his role as a prophet, whose job it was to hold the kings of the nation to account. Now Herodias didn't like this, she took offence at it, and she had one thought and one thought only, we have to get rid of this man. But Herod had a slightly more complicated relationship with John. We've already seen that. In some sense, he admired him. He, he, he liked him, he respected him, he feared him. He probably sensed that, that, that if he didn't treat John well, God might have something to say about it. So he tried to appease Herodias, by putting John in prison, but at the same time keeping this kind of friendlyish relationship going with John, by keeping him safe, protecting him so that Herodias couldn't get to him and kill him. And, and every so often he would summon John or, or visit him in prison perhaps. Verse 20 there, and, and, and listen to him. And listen to him gladly. And yet at the same time being greatly perplexed. Perplexed that there. It isn't, isn't the sense of confusion, but more wavering. It's that sense of, I'm not quite unable, able to make my mind up about what I'm going to do with this guy and what he's saying. He was wavering. He was feeling pulled in, in, in different directions. So here's that, that superficial stuff again. He's, there's interest, but at no point does he repent. And it seems that this has been going on for some time. Maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe a year or two, I'm not sure. Probably not that long. Anyway, it's going on a while. But then, verse 21, but an opportunity came. Now, this is an important moment. Who is this an opportunity for? Well, the text describes it as an opportunity for Herodias. It's an opportunity for her to get her way. Up till this point, she's been thwarted from getting her way. But this is her time. And as the story plays out, we begin to realize that just as this door of opportunity opens up for Herodias, the door of opportunity for Herod to do the right thing slams firmly 
closed. The night in question is a big party. It's a birthday party. Everyone is invited. There's the mayor, there's the chief of police, there's the, the Rotary Club, maybe Jurgen Klopp equivalent is there. There's drinking, there's music. And then on comes Herodias's daughter for some dancing. Now, we know from elsewhere that she's called Salome, but she doesn't get a name here. She's probably a teenager or a young lady. Safe to say, I think, the implication is that she's attractive. Remember, she is Herod's great-niece and his stepdaughter, and he watches her dance. Now, some of us in this room have won prizes for our dancing. <laughs> but she really did steal the show. And this was not the YMCA. This was sensual, erotic, attractive dancing. And it pleased Herod so much that he vowed, verse 22 and verse 23, do you know what, you've, you've done something to me, there's something going on in, in, in my heart, in my body, with you. I, I've got to do something about it. Whatever you want, you can have it. You know, this leering lech is carried away in the moment, perhaps wanting to impress his guests with his generosity as well. Now, the story continues. You don't need me to walk you through it. Herodias is obviously a canny woman. She sees the opportunity, and the deal is done. John the Baptist's head, please, on a platter, verse 25. And Herod, completely trapped. Oh, he feels trapped. He's not actually trapped. Here's the right thing to do, Herod. Just say no. Just do it. But here are these other pulls on his, on his heart, stopping him from doing the right thing. Trapped by, what do you think it is that's trapping him? His fear of man, his reputation in front of the great and the good. Trapped by his fear of his wife, perhaps. Trapped by his pride. All those greater loves, those greater desires, those stronger pulls on his heart overtake him and stop him from doing the right thing. And it's such a sad story. His, his gladness of verse 20 turns into exceeding sorrow in verse 26. And it all unravels in seconds. Notice how the language in this passage, that the, 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 the narrative suddenly speeds up. Did you see that? Remember how long Herod has been wavering, perplexed by John, weeks, months, however long it's been, listening to him but not repenting. And then verse 25, the daughter comes in immediately. She comes in with haste. And immediately, verse 27, he sends for an executioner. Weeks and months of wavering. Then in an instant, minutes later, the deed is done. John is dead. His head is on a plate. It's a, it's a terrifying illustration of how quickly sin can overtake us. All the while, that refusal to repent has been there, festering away, while Herod debated what to do. And if he did have any intentions to do something good with John, he never acted on them. And now in the blink of an eye, he's impossibly trapped, exceedingly sorry, and haunted forevermore by what he has done. Did you notice that kind of sense of hauntedness right at the start of the story in verse 14 there? Um, it's kind of the, the, the time switching around here a little bit, isn't it? But 
in, in, in verse 14, Herod has heard of all these things that Jesus and his disciples are doing, and, and that's after John's, uh, John's been killed, but Herod's remembering it. It's as if he's haunted by John the Baptist. Oh, it must be John's come back to life. That, that terrible thing that I did, it's come back to haunt me. It's just a, a sorry picture of a man forever plagued by his mistakes, but powerless to do anything about them. Um, back in 1965, there was a very, very, very long film made about the life of Jesus called The Greatest Story Ever Told. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Charlton Heston played John the Baptist. Um, and there's a quite, quite a poignant uh, way in which they describe uh, some of these events. Whereas Herod sends John the Baptist off with the executioner and his big blade in front of him, ready to have his head lopped off. John is, is shouting from the other room, repent, 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 and Herod's hearing it. And then you hear the blade come down with, with, the, with a thud. And then the camera zooms in on, on Herod's face, and you hear a whisper, repent. He can't get away from, from that message to repent. It's sad, he's trapped. But what do we take away from this? First, let me speak to, to those of you who aren't Christians. You are really welcome here. I know there are several of you. Maybe you're someone here and you're the only person who knows that you are not a Christian. Everyone else thinks that you are. But you know you're not. Whether or not there are any of these superficial signs of spiritual life in you, you know that you've never repented. The call of this passage is to turn to Jesus now, before it is too late. The moment to repent is now. The longer you leave it, the harder it gets. Perhaps speak to someone about that today. If you're a young person, speak to your parents, speak to a youth leader, speak to anyone, speak to me. That might be a really tough thing to do. It might require courage. But don't put it off. Don't be Herod. Let me also speak to those who are Christians in this room. I know that's most of us, but not all of us. The example of Herod and all the people in this chapter is a warning to us too. Because we sat here this morning can have the same attitude. We can have been confronted with specific sins and yet we're still refusing to repent of them and to change. Or maybe it's not a specific sin that you, you know that you haven't repented of and you, you need to, but there's just a general sense of superficiality about your Christian life. Be warned. You can't drift through the Christian life. The Christian life is a constant confrontation with the person and the claims and the authority of Jesus and a constant battle to respond to him in the right way, in repentance and faith. So the question is, and it's a question I've asked of myself before I ask it of you, is, is repentance a mark genuinely of your Christian life? Is it really a mark of your Christian life? Have we paid enough attention to this key marker 
of Christian growth and life and spiritual health. Can you say that you exercise the muscles of repentance regularly? Or are they weak and flabby and small and unused? When did you last consider your sin and, and, and cry over it? Whether the tears were internal or external makes no difference. But say, Lord, Lord forgive me. I, I hate that sin. I want to change. I turn to you and away from that. When was the last time that literally or metaphorically you were on your knees before the Lord saying, have mercy. Please forgive me. My sense is that that is not as normal for us as it ought to be, but that should be normal Christian experience. We talked about opportunity before. Herod had his opportunity and he prevaricated. He put it off. Herodias had hers and she didn't hesitate. But every time we encounter Jesus, we come face to face with his authority as we have throughout Mark's gospel. Every time that we do that is an opportunity for us to repent. And every time we don't do it, we're less likely to do it next time. Our hearts become hardened. You know what a callus is, don't you, on your skin? You keep rubbing it, you keep rubbing it, and eventually it hardens up. It doesn't feel the pain anymore. It doesn't feel the pricks. It's the body's defense mechanism, isn't it? But spiritually, the same thing can happen to us. The longer we refuse to repent, the longer we don't act when we are confronted and challenged with something and we don't repent of it, the less impact it will have on us as time goes on and the easier it will be to ignore. So can I encourage you to make it normal to ask, what do I need to repent of today? It's a good spiritual discipline, a question to ask of yourself before you pray, before you uh, chat to someone. What is it I need to repent of today? What are the hopes, the desires, the fears, the loves that are crowding in on my mind and are stopping me from loving him first? Things that I'm clinging on to rather than putting them to death. What are the things which are growing inside me and which when the moment comes and the pressure comes on, might suddenly explode and reveal themselves to be as ugly as they actually are. There is always something for us to repent of because we're fallen human beings and the time to repent is always now, before it's too late, before our hearts get calloused, before unrepentance becomes the norm. I could finish by talking a bit more and exploring some of the things that we might need to repent of. What does fear of man look like for us? Comparing ourselves with others, greed, putting career before Jesus, being lukewarm spiritually. But instead, let me finish by reminding you that repentance is, is not just about turning away from sin, but it's about turning to Jesus. And so let me finish by reminding you of him. Because when you do turn to him, you can be sure that he will not turn you away. You're pushing on an open door when it comes to repentance with Jesus. So if there's some challenge for you this morning, whenever you're challenged in the future, you can repent boldly. You can repent with confidence. You can repent through the tears with a smile on your face, knowing that the one that you're turning to is the one who, as we'll see next week, has compassion on us 
who loved us, who died for us, who died to forgive the very people who put him to death, who was always saying, come to me. That, that film that I referred to earlier with Charlton Heston poignantly pictures that the haunting of Herod as John's call to repent carried on like in that haunting whisper even after his death. But Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the dead. And so his death isn't, isn't followed by a, a whisper. It's followed by a loud cry of victory. He rose and there is a resounding cry which we can hear which says, It is finished. Your sin is dealt with. So you can come to me in repentance and faith and know that it is dealt with. I have paid it all. So believe my good news. Come to me before it's too late. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing Jesus paid it all and celebrate the certainty of the forgiveness of sins, which means we can repent boldly with confidence. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, on a day when we consider Remembrance Day and the seriousness of, of life and death, of the brokenness of this world, Father, thank you for also confronting us with the seriousness of the possibility of unrepentance. We long, Father, that you would stir us up uh, prick our hearts before they are too hard. Show us our sin, but more than that, show us the goodness, the love, the forgiveness, the welcome of Jesus to all who will come to him. Thank you that we can. Thank you that we do that right now, today. Thank you uh, for paying it all for us. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen.